Hi guys, welcome to Jules and Phoebe, the weekly pop culture and social commentary podcast brought to you by yours truly, Jules and Phoebe. Hey Phoebe. Hey Jules, how are you? I'm good, how are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. We took a break last week because of Easter and I booked actually the Tuesday off as well. So I had like five full days, which was so nice. I'm sure that lots of people listening to this podcast are in the same boat, but I feel like we're not prioritizing taking annual leave and like actual rest at the moment because we're all like, oh, well, we're at home anyway. I don't really want to take a holiday just to be in my house, which I do understand. But also mentally, I think it's actually very taxing to essentially be living at work, which is what a lot of us have been doing for the past year. Yeah, absolutely. So I took some time off as well. So that was good. And I guess the big news this week is that the lockdown is easing. Yes. So what are you up to this week? Are you doing anything? So actually, unfortunately, I'm not because I've got quite a few university assignments due. But what I have started doing is booking places for dinner because I want to go out for meals. I've missed out on essentially a year of eating out. And I'm trying to get some good restaurants in the diary. So if anyone is listening who's in London and has got some good recommendations, please do feel free to get in touch and let me know. But what about you? Yes, I'm catching up with friends this weekend. Can't wait. And I do need to go and like do my nails, do my hair. But then I'm just so worried. I feel like the queue for the nail place will be around the block. The thing is as well, I'm a bit, what is it, like once bitten, twice shy, because I feel like lockdown has eased and then kicked in again so many times over the past year that I kept getting caught in the cycle of getting my nails done and then being like oh I can't get them done for another nine weeks so I'm just watching them grow out at home so I want to get a manicure but like keep it very minimalist I think my new thing now is I'm not going to get anything done that I can't just maintain at home whereas before I would have been like eyelash extensions nails done gel pedicure like all of this kind of stuff and now I'm like oh that's really complicated to just do yourself when you're not quite sure when you're going to get to leave the house again yeah no I agree but it's an emergency for me (laughs) so we are going to have bells and whistles because it's actually an emergency because I haven't actually had a manicure or pedicure since December yeah I don't know what everyone else's schedule is like but that is a really long time because we're in April now Mm-hmm. So yes, I'm definitely, definitely looking forward to that. And I just think, take this chance to get out there. I am really worried about the long lasting effects of such an extended period in lockdown and how that's going to impact people's mental health. Totally. And one of the things that really upset me last week was a situation with Richard Okorage, who was a young man from West London. Uh, 19 years old who went missing and then basically a body was found a few weeks after so the body was found last week and was identified as Richard and so they are positioning it as in you know he was a young man who had sickle cell and they're saying that he was telling his mom that he was having a really tough time with the lockdown then he ended up going missing and the death is suspicious I'm not sure what they've officially classed that death as, but it looks like perhaps it was a suicide. God, how awful. Have you followed that story? Have you not seen it? I know I've been following it. And the idea that he would have been in such a dark place because of completely... But we can't in- say, yeah, but just to caveat, I'm not sure 100%. That's just what they're positioning it as potentially. 
Mm-hmm. So we we don't know if something did happen to him, but they are saying that because of, he had sickle cell, he was shielding, he was telling his mom he was having a really tough time, and then this is what's happened. It's so sad, and it's so sad to hear his mum talking as well and what she was told by members of the, the police force, which was essentially, you know, if you can't find your son, why do you expect us to find him or how do you expect us to find him for you? And then you have all of that against the backdrop of the report that came out that said there's no institutional racism in the UK. And then we've got this young black man and the police are telling his family, if you can't find him, why do you think we would be able to find him? And the only reason why resources were allocated to the case is because it went viral. Which is one of the kind of few instances in which you think, oh, good, social media doing something for good, something just inherently positive. But it's such a sad ending and it's such an awful juxtaposition as well when you think about the Sarah Everard case and that that got so much mainstream media attention and as you said in the context of a report saying that there's no institutional racism in the UK that's obviously a really troubling lie but that's a lie that now some people will feel supported in propagating basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah I think what's good with that report though is that Even the experts that they tried to quote or research that they tried to use to prop up the conclusion that there's no institutional racism in the UK, these professionals came out and said, this isn't true. I wasn't even consulted by them. They're misusing my research. They're not using recent research. There has been such a backlash against that report, which I really appreciate. So I don't think you can actually credibly use it. Mm-hmm. But what hasn't happened is that like, people are waiting for Boris Johnson to come out and say that, that report is nonsense. It hasn't gone that far, of course. The government hasn't done that, but I don't think that you can actually use that report in a legitimate way. I hope that you're right. I feel that more and more in recent times, I've become aware of my own echo chamber and then, you know, kind of outliers of situations happen. Mm-hmm. And I have a discussion with someone and I think, oh, of course, like not everyone is reading the same things as me. And that's not me using myself as the kind of the litmus test of what is inherently right or inherently truthful, but more that it's just, it is important to realize that actually some people will hear that that report has been published and will just say, yeah, sounds about right. And won't put any further questions to themselves. Mm -hmm. And what's so sad is that, I don't know if you looked at that report and who it was compiled by, but it was mainly black commissioners. And so that's why I always say you have to be careful. Like identity politics falls flat on its face so many times because you think just because you've got a female there, just because you've got a black person there, just because you've got somebody from this background, it doesn't mean that they're genuinely advocating on behalf of that community. And this report proved that You've got all these OBEs and MBEs. And so it's a situation where, and especially when you look at people like from the Commonwealth, basically, you look at everything that's happened, you look at the history of it, and then you get a handful of people and then you give them MBEs and OBEs. And they're like, oh, no, it's really not that bad. Like there's no institution, nothing to see over here. Totally. And it's so funny because I was actually thinking earlier And one of the things that we're going to discuss today in the podcast is Prince Philip's death. But I was really thinking about the journey that I've had over the past year in terms of my feelings towards the royal family. And I think in one of the early episodes, you and I spoke about MBEs and OBEs. And 
I said something about like, oh, I mean, that's the dream, regardless of me being Irish, like I would still love one. And now I think, mm, no, actually, I don't think that I would. And maybe that's easy for me to say, because no one's offering one. Um, <laughs> but it feels to me that over the past 12 to 18 months, a lot of stuff's been dragged out into the light that I feel that you can't ignore about the class system in the UK. And I guess the idiosyncrasies of that class system and the damage that it brings. The thing is, if I was being offered an MBE or an OBE, I would take it. So I'm not one of those people that's like, oh my gosh, hell no, I wouldn't accept one of those awards. I would. But unfortunately, the majority of the time, when people get accepted by any kind of establishment, any kind of institution, any kind of big organization a lot of the time what happens is they become co-opted so I'm sure there are people that are doing great work and they're leveraging those connections for whichever charities or causes are dear to their heart there are people that are doing good work but unfortunately a lot of the time you just end up in a situation like this where people use that platform to uphold the status quo right and i think right I don't know how long this report has been in the works and what the hell was going on but with Harry and Meghan coming out saying basically accusing the British royal family of racism and all of that being in the press and then having to defend themselves against these accusations I think the timing of the report coming out is really interesting and I think it's coming out to say oh no 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 nothing to see over here the UK is a model of multiculturalism beyond reproach mm-hmm. we have executed utopia (laughs) yeah and for me it's really sad for me it's such a move backwards because when I was watching the Harry and Meghan interview and I was saying this to a couple of people afterwards I'm not sure I said on the podcast but I said watching Harry really take a stand and I'm I'm such a fan of like his evolution because he has grown like we know where Harry was and we know where he is now like his perspective has really matured and it made me so proud to be British because I'm thinking wow if that's the future if people can really grow in that way, it's exciting. We have a future. And then this report comes out and you're like, oh, no, that was just a dream. <laughs> that was a dream. You, you imagined that. Yeah, I would agree with you because I think one of the things that we did say on the podcast is that you can justifiably critique Harry for things that happened in his past. But what you have to acknowledge is if things like that can happen in a person's past, it means that at no point have they been required to grow or address those negative aspects of their personality or their experience. And it takes a lot, and this kind of backs up what you're saying about the commissioners of this report, perhaps. It takes a lot to leave an institution that has supported you, you know, when there actually isn't necessarily a benefit in you doing so. And we can talk flippantly about Harry and Meghan living their best lives in Montecito and everything, but he grew up in a life where there was someone waiting outside his bedroom door every morning with a pot of tea and his itinerary for the day. And I think this is probably something that we'll discuss in a bit more detail when we really dive in about Prince Philip and what leaving a legacy means. But I said to my husband this morning, there's obviously a lot of talk about service and life of duty and all of these components when Harry and Meghan were kind of asked to give up all of their patronages. And they issued that statement. They said everyone can live a life of service. And now since 
Philip has died, everyone's talking about oh, a life of service, a life of duty. And I think, you know what, for most people, the struggle is juggling life and those acts of service. It's that most of us are working full-time jobs. We are potentially carers for other people in our family. We're parents. We are doing the school run. We're trying to also volunteer or mentor or do something positive in another area of our lives with a limited bandwidth. And who knows what kind of life of service or duty you could lead if that was your job. And if there were no mortgage repayments or down payments or saving for a pension or saving for your child's school, if someone was picking you up and dropping you off at each and every one of these events, if someone was writing your speeches for you, someone was handing you the scissors to cut the ribbon and then you got back in the car and left again. And I'm not saying that to be dismissive of the kind of charity hierarchy in the UK, but none of these people have ever worked a nine to five in their lives. And sometimes I feel like it's such a strange mental attitude. And I hold that true of Prince Harry, even though I like him. You know, he's not worked a nine to five or he's not had to work a 12 hour a day or he's not come up against a crushing important deadline in the same way that most people who listen to this podcast have. Well, he's yeah. never worked in retail or customer service when someone's been really nasty to him just because. Hmm. I wouldn't, I still wouldn't take away from how hard the work the royal family do is. I don't think being in the royal family is easy. I don't think that doing those tours are easy. I think the setup is actually really, really tough, which is why a lot of them end up with so many personal issues. So I think, yes, if we all had the opportunity like we would definitely take that setup of having a team of 100 people to help us execute on our daily tasks. So I think that makes it a little bit easier. But I think I prefer my life over being a member of the royal family. Like I don't think it's something I'd even wish on people. They do not seem happy. Yes, I think kind of the issue with that hypothetical situation, right, is that you think of your life now and you think of their life now And it's like, oh, I would always prefer to just be able to go for dinner with friends or meet up with a friend for a drink or or have the life that I have. But you have a life of purpose because you've had to cultivate that purpose for yourself because most people who aren't born into an institution like that have to do that. You know, you have to think about, well, what's my vocation or what's my five-year plan, whatever the case may be. Whereas the people within the royal family and within that institution have only ever known a life of noblesse. So there's been no overriding purpose. All Charles and William are doing is waiting for the person in front of them to die so that they can take on what they perceive to be their real role. But there's nothing structural about that role. And by virtue of that, there's nothing really structural about any of their lives or the purpose that they give to it. And obviously that sounds like I'm being so small R Republican, abolish the monarchy. And maybe I am a little bit, but also I'm just thinking, well, what does Princess Anne's day look like? I don't know, I'm struggling. She's in her 70s, I think. So maybe she's a a poor example, but you know what I mean? There's no, you said this 
ages ago on one of our podcasts when I made the comment about you've got the same amount of hours in the day as Beyonce and you said well no you don't because Beyonce's not commuting anywhere Beyonce's not doing a food shop Beyonce doesn't have anything like that to do so I don't think that Beyonce's day looks like mine does do you know what I mean and this is why I think sometimes the pedestal is so problematic because it's worshipping people who are having to do a third of what you have to do on a day-to-day basis yeah I agree yeah I agree that the pedestal is definitely problematic and sort of seeing people post things on LinkedIn and on all the social media platforms and all this stuff about Prince Philip and it's interesting because I there's been a backlash against all of this coverage so there was a massive backlash against the BBC cancelling weekend programming to talk about the life of Prince Philip. And then I read in an article that people were saying that it was basically North Korea-like coverage. One of the things that has bothered me about it is that they keep celebrating the fact that he was not politically correct, the fact that he was unabashed. Like, there's all these weird kind of euphemisms that they're using in the press. And basically they're saying he was really great because he was racist and he didn't care. Yeah, and it's presented as this, like, charming quirk. And Mm. listen, don't get me wrong, there are problematic ideologies baked into various generations. Like, my grandmother had a lot of potentially internalised misogyny, right? There are things that are par for the course for particular times, but that means that you stop that person from talking. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm articulating that badly, but what I'm trying to say is, say with my grandmother's internalised misogyny, where she would think, well, the woman stays home, the woman takes care of the kids, all of this kind of stuff. There was a, a certain amount of education that happened organically from her grandchildren, who were all granddaughters, bar one, getting jobs and going out to work and not necessarily fulfilling that that structure, that expectation. And I guess the key difference is that my grandmother never had a microphone to air those kind of views publicly. There's a point at which you've moved past saying, oh, you know, he's of his time to actually just supporting that mentality by giving the microphone. Yeah, and that's what's happened. There's a pervasive celebration of his mindset and of the things that he said that were completely inappropriate. And I think you can celebrate, there are things to celebrate about Prince Philip. Yeah, you can talk about the service, you know, him and the Queen of England were married for over 70 years, probably not the most perfect marriage, but I think that is something to celebrate, to be able to make that commitment and for them to have that life together. Cool, talk about that. You know, but the fact that they've used this as an opportunity to kind of justify a bunch of inappropriate things that Prince Philip said, it really shows you that we're not moving forward. So there was a tweet I saw earlier today, and I just wanted to read it out. Now, I haven't verified this, so I've not done the legwork on it. But it said MPs will give tributes to Prince Philip from half past two today until 10pm. There will be no other parliamentary business. And that's where I'm a bit like... This doesn't make any sense. You know, if nothing else, we're in the midst of a global pandemic now. I reject the narrative that we should be having a kind of a media blackout to discuss Prince Philip's death, which, as you've noted, you know, there are components there, talk about his life of service, talk about his his duty, but that shouldn't be at the expense of all else. 
particularly at a time like now when we've just Brexited and when we're in the midst of a global pandemic where 150,000 people have died in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think that they're using the whole Prince Philip thing as a distraction. They use the whole Meghan Markle thing as a distraction from some of the real issues we're having in the UK. And I was really shocked this morning because I saw that um, Keir Starmer had come out and said that the press coverage against Meghan Markle was not racist. Oh, give over. It's so crazy because for those of you guys who don't know who Keir Starmer is, he is the leader of the Labour Party, which is the opposition party in the UK. He has no backbone. He has no vision. He has no opinion. But he's coming out to make a specific point about the British press coverage not being racist against Meghan Markle. And I was talking to some friends about this and they said that culture wars are, are a tool. Well, I think the left use culture wars as well. But it's personally for me now, I'm so embarrassed to be a Labour voter because rather than talking about issues, like Keir Starmer abstains on every important vote. He's literally got nothing to contribute. But he's now diving into this culture war and always ending up on the wrong side. Always ending up on the wrong side. Do you think, just as you were speaking there, I was thinking this potentially backs up your earlier point, but the fact that he's Sir Keir Starmer, do you think that that prevents him from being able to contribute to a narrative that potentially critiques the royal family? Yeah, I think it does to a certain extent because, you know, I said that if I was offered an award from the Queen, I would take it. But chances are, I would never be offered (laughs) (laughs) such award, right? There are certain people that are offered these types of awards. There are certain people who are welcomed into the club. And so I think what Keir Starmer is trying to do is to lead a left party or a party that's meant to be left. He's trying to lead this left party, but he's trying to serve two masters. And he's trying to serve the establishment and then basically left-leaning voters or more liberal voters or working class people in the UK. And it's incredibly difficult to serve the establishment and serve working class people in the UK or serve people that think that the working class should have education and healthcare, etc. It's almost become really a conflict because before I felt that you could be a sir and then you could still have that moral compass where you believe in the welfare state. But it's like these days it's becoming really difficult for people to be both. It's funny, my dad says this thing where the slave with two masters is a free man. So I actually think that that complements well what you're saying to Keir Starmer, because, you know, it's obviously difficult for him to fulfill both sides of this obligation, right? But he's not actually being taken to task for it. There are actually no real repercussions. I don't hear... No, people are retaliating. Labour's lost a lot of members, a lot of members. They have no new membership. And I don't think that Labour are going to win an election for 10 years. I don't think that Keir Starmer is a prime minister in waiting. So no, it's a wrap. There's definitely repercussions there. Like it's a complete wrap. I've got friends who are traditional Labour voters. I feel they can't even vote Labour now because they don't see any difference between the Labour Party and the Tory party. Yes, it's almost like Tory has gone further right, but Labour has gone so centrist that it's kind of, it's Tory light. (laughs) Yeah. And it comes back, I guess, to the idea of legacy and what you're putting in place for that. Some people don't care, quite frankly, right? And when you think about 
May, Cameron, now Johnson, all being heads of the Tory party, whether or not they ruled or led well is almost beside the point because they will be noted as former prime ministers of the United Kingdom. And for some of them, that's enough. And I think that brings it back to Prince Philip in an interesting way, because it's talking about his legacy. And one of the things that I found fascinating over the course of the weekend in the aftermath of the announcement of Prince Philip's death was that Prince Andrew did a little interview with Sky News. Did you see this? Exactly. So I didn't see the interview, but I saw a headline saying something like Prince Philip's son speak about him. And I saw Prince Andrew and I thought, what? You sneaky people. They're basically using these opportunities to reintroduce Prince Andrew back into society and legitimise him. It's grief washing. That's what I saw it referred to on Twitter. What does grief washing mean? You know when you whitewash something or you, you greenwash something, so you pretend that something's ecologically friendly when it actually isn't or when you whitewash something to make it more palatable? Andrew is being reintroduced as a working member, a softly reintroduced, should I say, as a working member of the royal family under the guise of him talking about his father's death. And it's almost like to test the waters because I saw people on Twitter saying, you know, leave him alone. He's just lost his dad. But actually, no, don't leave him alone. He's a public figure. And clearly it's not enough for him to live his life quietly and privately surrounded by obscene amounts of wealth and privilege. He clearly needs to be adored or something as well, because if he didn't, he would say, wow, I really got out of that. I got out of the the FBI wanting to speak to me. I mean, they still want to speak to him, but wanting to speak to me about charges of child trafficking and sexual assault of a minor and nothing really happened to me. Yeah, I think you're bang on with that. I think it, it's this whole, um, there's a sense of entitlement that my subjects must tolerate me or must be interested in what I have to say in this moment. And it was so funny because uh, there was a news clip and they were saying that, oh, let's look at Windsor. Let's see the views outside Windsor today. And then they showed, right, the views outside Windsor. And I think this was on Saturday. And it was like, there was no one there. It was like super normal. I think you had your regular tourists that would be there on any other day. I don't think people are that interested in Prince Philip's passing away. I think he was 99 years old. He lived a long life. But I don't think people are going out to Windsor and like putting out flowers and like taking time off work. And I don't think this is a seismic event in our nation's history. I would agree with you. And I think... That obviously rankles with some people because some people really do hold the British monarchy in great esteem. One thing that I thought, having heard Prince Andrew speak and give that little, you know, soundbite to Sky News, I kind of felt like even if you believe that the Queen was anointed by God, that she was chosen by God to rule, that doesn't mean anything for Andrew. He's just her third son you know and so the idea that even if you don't think that that narrative is insane and I say this is someone who was raised Catholic and still has 
residual aspects of her Catholicism, you know, baked into her. Why does the anointing by God extend on and on and on and on and on, except when it comes to Prince Harry's mixed race baby? Yeah, exactly. We're unable to critique the ruling class here. And you and I have said on numerous occasions, classism is such a huge component of British life. And it's so interwoven in, or it's intersex on so many levels with racism. But there's an inability to critique it meaningfully here. I don't think that the royals work that hard. And I say that as someone who used to think that they work that hard. But it's almost like if you say that, I even said that to my husband. And he was like, no, I think you're being out of line here. And I was thinking, are you joking? Yeah, but it reminds me of um, there's a a simulation. It's like a wealth simulation, like a graphic that's going around. And it's a graphic of like the top 10 billionaires over the last 20 years. I don't know if you've seen it. No, I've not. Okay, yeah. And it basically has their names. No one from the UK is there, by the way. There's a French national that makes it, Brazilian national that makes it, obviously the regulars, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates. And then you've got like Elon Musk coming into play. You've got Jeff Bezos coming into play. And it basically just shows like their wealth going like up and down and them accumulating this wealth. And this graphic is going around and everyone is like, oh my God, I'm so impressed with Warren Buffett's longevity in the billionaire game. Oh, I'm so impressed with Bill Gates. Oh, wow. It didn't take Elon long to build his billions, etc. <laughs> I was looking at these WhatsApp groups. And I'm like, people are so obsessed with wealth. And I think it's the same attitude that makes people rise up in defense of a royal family that literally doesn't care about them and take any critique against them as a personal attack. And it also reminded me a bit of when I lived in Nigeria and people would debate about, no, my past is richer than yours because it's it's really well known that there are pastors that are incredibly wealthy in Nigeria. And people would take solace in the fact that their pastors were really, really, really wealthy, even if they had nothing. And I think we spoke about it on the podcast before where I was saying that I think the royal family might even become, it's going to go two ways, but they could become even a bit more significant as the quality of life in the UK goes down because people seem to be programmed to really worship status. And in this country, the royal family are at the very top of the hierarchy. So, you know, we're not France, you know, we do not strike over every issue like somebody was saying to me that he's really shocked that given the furloughs, given the lockdown, given the whole issue we had around the government voting against free school meals for children mm-hmm. in this country, given all the problems, he's like, wow, like no one is in the streets, you know. And the only time we did have a situation where people went into the streets was around Sarah Everard. And we saw what happened there. We saw how the police reacted there. So we are just not a country that's set up for any kind of protest. And so the royal family has some hope. (laughs) Bang on, I would say. I I don't think that we're any closer to abolishing the monarchy. But it's not even abolishing. So let's say we're not even at the abolishing stage. But can we at least have open and honest conversations about what's going on? Can we at least say 
we shouldn't have a sex trafficker on our British Broadcasting Corporation or on our Sky News? Like, can we at least just have that as a standard? We're really, really, really far behind because we're not even at that stage. Also piggybacking off that, I think that it speaks to the royal family knowing how precarious their position is because there is such a symbiotic, or do I mean parasitic? Someone let me know. I think I mean symbiotic relationship between the royal family and the cartel, as they're referred to, because the cartel get the inside scoops, provided they continue writing positive stories about... um, the The cartel, I think, are the Daily Mail, the Sun, the Mirror... I think there's five of them in total, maybe the independent as well. They're predominantly red top publications, though. And the idea is that they're always the ones who get the first scoops from the royal family, just for anyone who's listening internationally and didn't know that. The idea is that they always get to publish new pictures that the royals have taken first and all of this kind of stuff. But there's obviously a component here where they write positively about you as long as you are sharing the scoops with them and da 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 like back and forth, back and forth. So then during the week when Piers Morgan was on Tucker Carlson in the US and he was talking about, you know, I've had members of the royal family reach out to thank me for taking Meghan and Harry to task. It's like two things there. Firstly, name them because you insisted that Meghan and Harry should name the people who made racist comments within the royal family. So by virtue of that, I extend the same ultimatum to you. Name them or it didn't happen. But then secondly, he then posted on his Instagram and on Twitter, I think, a picture of him outside Kensington House with like hashtag Team Palace. So by virtue of that, letting everybody know that the people who thanked him must have been William and Kate because they're living in a Kensington Palace. And I think, why is that not problematic? Why is that not a huge issue that a man was so vitriolic about a woman that he had met once, that he wrote literally hundreds of articles about her, tweeted about her constantly, said that she was lying when she said she was suicidal, is clearly working with the future king getting explicit endorsement from him on the things that he's saying and no one in the UK thinks actually no that's problematic I would have an issue with that if it were a member of a political party who had been voted for but I don't have an issue with it when apparently this man is going to be anointed by the hand of God and will be the future, future King of England. Yeah, I think that Piers is just lining things up for his knighthood. And I thought Meghan was the social climber, but whatever. But it's so funny that you brought that whole thing up because I read an article about Prince William cutting off the journalist, Tom Bradby. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't know this guy by name, but then when I looked into it, he's basically the journalist from ITV that asked Meghan if she was okay in that interview. And that clip kind of went viral, right? And so apparently they've had a friendship. He's had a friendship with both Will and Harry for many years. And now Prince William is so livid that he continues to communicate with Harry, that he's cut him off. And then is also really angry that he's one of the people that helped bring the Oprah Winfrey interview to ITV. 
And then you really realize you just don't have a free and independent press. Absolutely. And that should be an issue for people. And in any other scenario, that would be a hugely damning indictment that someone who is going to be, yes, okay, I know someone's going to say like, oh, but the, the royal family don't actually have any power. It doesn't matter. No, even they if have it's a lot just, of power, actually. And even if it was just soft diplomacy, that matters. Mm-hmm. I don't understand how it's not a damning indictment of Prince William that he is so sensitive and so fragile Mm. that he will cut off a journalist a member of the free press for asking his sister-in-law if she's okay and that's it what friendship's done because he's being too friendly to to harry yeah and still mates with them so basically william isn't having it but they always say that oh the queen is just a figurehead the queen is just a figurehead right and of course we do have separate branches of government but the queen of england is incredibly influential the queen gets to see bills before they are passed and has actually lobbied against specific bills and i was reading that there was like a tax bill that was going to impact the duchy estate and she lobbied against that and i think we're so naive where we think this is really just about vibes this is about crowns and beautiful couture outfits and vibes and it's like no guys this is this is way beyond most of our heads, you know? And I think for me, because I'm still not at the abolish the monarchy stage, so obviously I've drank the Kool-Aid, I'm waiting for, you know, Lizzie to call me and offer me an MBE. So (laughs) I'm a part of it. I'm complicit. I'm a part of this whole thing. But we shouldn't be naive and think, oh, wow, they don't have power. Like, they have a lot of power. And also the trajectory that you mentioned there, or the covert trajectory that you've kind of alluded to, I guess, more accurately, because Elizabeth ascended to the throne when she was very young and education wasn't a priority for women at the time you know it's been well documented that that one of the things that she values in other people most is education because she didn't get to pursue hers and so then you've got a situation where the next people lining up for the throne are Charles and William who have had exposure to education and by virtue of that, are potentially able to wield even more power in those situations with the pre-screening of bills or the covert lobbying that can take place because they've got the tools of patriarchy at their disposal as well, right? Where they're also just taken more seriously and there's an old boys club that they are privy to that regardless of how much respect you have for the queen or the royal family or the monarchy, the queen wasn't considered on the same or at the same intellectual level as many of the prime ministers that she would have worked with over the course of her tenure, for want of a better word. Yeah, I think it's interesting to just see how things end up with the UK because you don't have many powerful industrial nations that actually have a monarchy. We're in the past. (laughs) I really don't know what else to say, but we are in the past. We don't want to move forward. We don't want to embrace any differences. We don't want to embrace innovation and... It is what it is. Yeah, I feel more negative about it than I felt for a while. But I think probably that's exacerbated, obviously, I have to acknowledge this, by lockdown and the fact that the reason that I live in London and the reason that I love living in London is because it is culturally diverse. There's music, there's restaurants, there's film. 
that is exposing you to different people and different things and different cultures all the time. And obviously for the past 12 months, I've been largely in my house. So now I'm like, I hear rhetoric like that. And I think, yeah, no, maybe it's, maybe it's time to leave London. I think London is a great city. And for me, I'm so attached, but I think it's healthy to have conversations about your society. That's why we have this podcast about what's going on, you know, about the direction and have these conversations without blaming other people for issues right and you just don't have enough of that it's like whenever you do have a conversation it's always some kind of blame game and it's we're always punching down the punching down is the key aspect there because I think that it is worth holding people to account and I don't understand you know why we lack the say with the royal rota when all of the royals disclose how many events they've done over the past year we like any kind of critical thinking when that's published and we're always like who who publishes that do you know what actually and i'll need to verify this but i'm pretty sure it's just some guy who does it some guy who keeps track of it and he'll he'll then say oh these are the numbers and then the royal family will be like yes those are the numbers it's not an official role it's just some guy who's doing where do you find that the royal family release the numbers every year Okay, interesting. So it'll always be like, oh, Charles did 573 events. But we lack any kind of critical thinking when it comes to those numbers. It's like, what did that event look like? What did that event consist of? Because if it's unveiling a plaque or cutting a ribbon, and as I said at the beginning of the podcast, there's someone picking me up and dropping me off and writing my speech when I get there, that's required zero effort on my part whatsoever. And... I'm not going to be, I don't know, I shouldn't be praised for it, but should I? It's the bare minimum. If yeah, that's all I had to do at work. Yeah, but it's the society that you live in. It is the society that we live in. Sorry, guys, it wasn't as negative as usual, but I feel like it took a, I took a negative turn there at the end. <laughs> no, but rightly so. Like, it's okay to have those conversations and wonder what is going on. I have a sneaky feeling that Prince Charles is actually quite happy because his inheritance is getting closer and closer. And somebody was saying that they think, oh, it's going to be so hard for the Queen. Now Prince Philip is gone. He's been her partner for so long. And I was saying they probably have separate rooms that she's going to start getting younger and younger every day. Jules. I, I don't think she's bothered. Jules, they were living in separate buildings. <laughs> exactly. He was in a literally, she's in Windsor because that's her favourite place, but he was in a completely other castle. another castle yeah so I think the queen's got a long time now and she can like completely chill and just do her yeah I and I think even the fact obviously we're winding up now so let me open this can of worms before we go but even the fact that all of Prince Philip's affairs are being whitewashed in the media now you know it's and it's using narrative like he fully leaned into family life it's like oh so he had finished having affairs and cheating on the queen we just leave that part out, shall we? I know, right? I was just like, come on, guys. But I guess it is natural for people to, when people pass away, it is natural for people to emblemish the good things about them. Let me hold my tongue. <laughs> yeah, I think people do that, like, all the time. People do do that all the time. But, yeah, it's just been a bit jarring. Totally. Totally. We'd love to know your thoughts on it. Were you moved? Were you more upset than you thought you would be? Were you completely disinterested? Or were you annoyed, actually? 
And did this spark any conversation for you about legacy and what that means and what that looks like to you? Yeah, the British people were annoyed because the BBC had to take down their complaints box because they were receiving a record number of complaints from viewers about the incessant coverage of Brexit. Um, so if that's the regular person viewing the BBC, I'd love to hear what our listeners think. Totally. Please let us know. Um, share the podcast with a friend. Find us on social media at Jules Phoebe. And have a great week. Bye. Bye. Bye.